Okay. All right. <clears throat> this is the second part of our first class on interpretation. Last In the last hour, we just talked about some of the basic issues in interpretation and basic problems, even among uh, scholars. A lot of people get the idea that, oh, well, pastor prays, he's filled with the Spirit, he somehow automatically knows um, what the Scripture says. And that's not true, as we've seen in our weeks before, is that the study of the Scripture takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, and it's not something that just automatically happens. It takes time, it takes research, takes a lot of reading, and we have to be sensitive to what's happened even in our own culture. I've noticed in, in recent publications, let's say things written since the early 90s, that you don't have the same shared values, let's say, as earlier works. Uh, every generation has different strengths and weakness in terms of how they've applied hermeneutics. That's, that needs to be understood. Just because Louis Berry Chafer said something, uh, he said things that differed a little bit from C.I. Schofield, even though Schofield was his mentor. Because as you go from generation to generation, there's there's more clarity, just as you know more about the areas that you specialize in, your hobbies, your uh, things, your work, things like that. You know more this decade than you did last decade. The same thing is true in the study of the Bible. We we build on what we've learned before, and so we're constantly honing and improving our understanding uh, of the text because we're never going to have a comprehensive knowledge of the Bible. There's always going to be questions. I think Hendricks. Hendricks was funny, I think, in one of the chapters, talks about how many question marks uh, he had or some pastor had in the margin of his Bible. Uh, there are things that we just don't understand and uh, that are difficult to interpret. Even Peter said that about Paul's writings, that Paul wrote many things that are difficult to understand. It's not that they're impossible. It's not that, oh, somehow God goofed in the process of revelation and didn't get that quite as clear as he should. It's that there are basic concepts and there are complex concepts in the Scripture, and it takes us time to work through a complete understanding of those things. Now, when we get to interpretation, there are a lot of different things that we have to think through. We have to understand that that we are looking at a piece of literature that is written by one person, or sometimes a couple of people, uh, written by one person, a human author, that is being guided and directed by a divine author. So there's a dual authorship of Scripture. Uh, it's inerrant and infallible, so we know that it's true and we can rely on it. We just have to make sure we understand it correctly. But it's written to a particular group of people in a particular historical setting, at a in a particular culture, and in a language that's not ours. And so what we're doing is we're basically reading our next-door neighbor's mail, but our next-door neighbor's been dead for 2,000 or 3,000 years, and it's written in a foreign language, and we're trying to understand and investigate this mystery of the meaning of this, of this written document. So we have to understand these basic issues that, that first and foremost in interpretation, we need to be asking what did the author, what did the writer intend to say to his original audience? That's what the text means. 
is the original context, the original author, and the original recipients. Uh, so we have to ask, what was that meaning? What did they understand? And what did he intend to communicate? Other questions that come up is, does a passage have more than one meaning? And I've indicated that one of the principles of hermeneutics is that a passage has only one meaning. When it comes to prophecy, is there more than one, um, uh, is there dual fulfillment? Uh, and I don't think there's dual fulfillment. A pa- there, there may be a, a dual prophecy. For example, in Isaiah chapter uh, uh, 6, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verse 9, the prophecy regarding the birth of the virgin, that is, if, if that's interpreted correctly, there, there's, there's a dual prophecy there. There's a prophecy that is related to uh, Ahab and, um, and before uh, Isaiah's son that's with him reaches maturity, there's a sign there. But then there's a second sign, which is the sign of the virgin's birth, uh, the uh, virgin giving birth that is only fulfilled in the person of Christ. You don't have a dual fulfillment. Now that is what happens today in a lot of uh, modern interpretation is that there was an immediate fulfillment, but it had kind of a typological application. And this is one of those crazy things that's happening now in a lot of uh, evangelical Old Testament studies is that's how they figure out that there's no messianic prophecies that all you have in the New Testament is is writers going back and finding something similar, and it, it really destroys the meaning of, of Scripture. So that's one question. Is there more than one meaning in Scripture? Do you have dual ap- application or dual fulfillment? Uh, Arnold uses that term a separate way. He, what he means by dual fulfillment is that there, part of the passage has an immediate fulfillment and part of it has a distant fulfillment, not that the one passage has a near and a far fulfillment. So he uses a little different language there. Um, questions like, uh, <clears throat> did the writers of Scripture write more than they understood? How much did they understand you know, what did they know and when did they know it kind of a question. How much did uh, did David really understand when he's writing Psalm 22? Does he understand that he's writing about crucifixion? Does he understand that even though he's writing about a contemporary experience, it has a distant application or fulfillment uh, messianically? Um, how, how do we uh, interpret language that's clearly figurative like in the Song of Solomon or language that's in the uh, in Proverbs, language that's in poetry. How how do we interpret that? All of these are important questions that we'll be addressing as we go through the text. Um, there are problems. What I want to do in this second class is just talk about uh, problems in biblical understanding. And one of the reasons that we have problems in understanding the Bible is because the Bible is an ancient book. The oldest book that we know of that uh, is, is probably the book of Job in the Old Testament. Job is doesn't mention um, Israel or Jerusalem. Uh, Job is probably written during the t- life of Abraham or Isaac, very early, long before Moses wrote or brought together in the final form the, the Pentateuch, the Torah. So Job was probably written around 2000 B.C. 
uh, Moses doesn't compile the Torah until uh, the period of the wilderness wanderings between 1446 and 1406 B.C., some 600 years after Job was was probably written. So then we so that's written. Uh, Job is written in a an Arab type culture, early Arab type culture, nothing like what we have today. Not a Jewish culture. The uh, uh, the, the Pentateuch, parts of it are written within the context of the, the area of the land that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Part of it involves Egypt. Part of it involves, so you have Egyptian culture, you have the culture of Ur of the Chaldees from which Abraham came. Uh, you have a mid or, or, or a late, late second millennium, late 3rd millennium B.C. to mid 2nd millennium B.C. context. And the only way we can understand that culture is through some of the few things that we've discovered archaeologically help us to understand uh, that culture at that particular time. And, and all of the Old Testament is written with the exception of a few chapters in Ezra and Daniel and a couple of other verses it's written in in Hebrew, and that's an inter- interesting connection between a language and a culture. Uh, my wife is bilingual and bicultural. She grew up in Mexico City, and we've had a lot of interesting conversations about how language shapes the way people think about reality, and the language is direct corollary to the culture of the people, and there's a f- important distinction there. Well, none of us are native uh, second millennium Hebrew speakers or uh, 5th century B.C. to 1st century A.D. Greek speakers. We don't think in terms of a Greek culture or a Hebrew culture, so there's this this, uh, chronological uh, disconnect between us and the original writing of Scripture. So that's one of the problems is that we have to bridge uh, two to four thousand years of of history. We also have a geographical problem, and this is one reason why I encourage people, especially young pastors. Uh, it's always a challenge because most trips to Israel cost around three to four thousand dollars, and I encourage young pastors to try to go to Israel. I tried for many years to go to Israel, was not able to until 2006. I'd already been a pastor for probably 25 years, and uh, but it changed how I read Scripture, not changed from right to wrong, but it filled it out. It gave a whole new dimension to my teaching once I'd actually walked the land and understood these spatial geographical connections. And when we aren't there... Uh, we can make mistakes, under, uh, simple mistakes, interpreting Scripture. One of which would be one I mentioned this morning in, in Matthew was how uh, the term thalasso, the Greek word for sea or lake, was translated. Thalasso does not refer to a salt water versus fresh water body of, of water, but in English, sea refers to a salt water body and lake refers to fresh water. The Sea of Galilee is a, how we've traditionally in English translated the term, but it's not a saltwater body of water. It's a lake, Lake Gennesar, Gennesaret, or Lake Tiberias. And so these kinds of geographical uh, flaws enter into our understanding uh, of the Scriptures. 
So we have this geographical disconnect, and we cover the lands of the Bible, cover everything from uh, Lower Egypt, which is the area of the Delta, Cairo, that area with the with Exodus, and and across the Sinai, up through the land of Israel, up to Tarsus in Turkey, the uh, seven letters to the seven churches, Greece, uh, all of these, and all the way over to Rome and Italy, all of it's important to understand the, the geography, uh, the culture of the people uh, at the time that the Bible, uh, the Bible was written. There are huge customs gaps uh, between how we operate as 21st century uh, Americans compared to, um, let's say, a 10th century B.C. or 12th century B.C. Uh, Midianite or uh, Israelite. And the custom of leveret marriage is very foreign to us, that if a man is married to his wife and they don't have any children and the man dies before they're able to have children, that's the responsibility of his brother, if he's not married, to come and take his wife as his and have children with her and raise them up as his brother's children so that inheritance continues to be passed down in terms of the uh, original husband. We don't have anything like that. The custom of Ruth and Boaz and Ruth going to Boaz as her kinsman, uh, as, as her husband's kinsman in order to, uh, have him marry her in terms of this levered marriage and going and sleeping at the, at the foot of his bed. Uh, this, you know, has been taken by some as something, something sexual where it's a recognition of her, uh, recognition of his, his authority and her willingness to, uh, enter into this marriage. These customs are so foreign to us, and yet we have to understand them to properly interpret, interpret the scripture. Uh, we have a language gap. Um, the way people in biblical times spoke, their, their, the nuances, the, the idioms, the shades of meaning. When you sit down and read anything, or you turn on the TV, or you go to a movie, uh, think about uh, idiom. I, I never really thought about how idiomatic our everyday language is until the first time I went to Russia back in 1994 and was speaking through a translator and realizing how how much we use idioms. I remember the, the, uh, a book on uh, dealing with uh, the three different types of sin, that we have uh, imputed sin, uh, we have inherited sin of Adam's original sin, we have imputed sin, and we have personal sin. Three sins. And the way this was presented was three strikes and you're out. Right? That's a baseball idiom. Try to communicate that to somebody in Peru who's never heard of a baseball game. The only thing they know is soccer and maybe basketball. So you've written a book or you've constructed a lesson that's all built around a baseball metaphor, and you're taking this cross-culturally to people who've never seen a baseball game. How does that communicate? You've got to have a translator who's able to understand the original picture and the original imagery of a baseball game and then somehow convert that over into their their culture. And so I became, and I still am, every time I go over to Kiev and uh, and teach, I'm, I catch myself using images and phrases that are common to an American audience, but then I'm listening to... And, and I, I'll say something, and the translator will look at me like, 
you know, how do you translate that? And, and so that's always a, uh, a challenge. So just think about that in terms of the Bible, that the Bible was written by these native Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek speakers, two people for whom Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek was their first language. And so in, in, they, they understood the nuances, they understood details like, and they heard it in ways that we don't hear it. And ever since I first studied, started studying Greek back in 1975, and reading the Greek text and reading through grammars, you know, every year I learn many, many new things about the language. Same thing with Hebrew and Hebrew idiom. And there's a lot of, there, there's a certain connectedness to, um, modern Greek and modern Hebrew that I think has just recently been rediscovered as opposed to 30 or 40, 50 years ago where they thought there was a broader, much broader disconnect. So a lot of these things have been um, um, been introduced. So that's just part of the, the issues with relate, related to language. Another thing in terms of interpreting Scripture is that in the original uh, Greek, there were no spaces between words, and there's no punctuation. So the only way that you can tell if there's a question statement or or where the the sentence begins and ends is based on on syntax. So this only comes with a, an intense and a deep familiarity uh with with language. And so we have to come to understand these these languages and it to to some degree dependent upon those who are much more adept knowledgeable in in these languages to help us to understand these particular uh, particular issues, uh, there's also a writing gap uh, between uh, um, 21st century and the uh, and BC. We write many things uh, today in terms of different formats and different structures and what's called genre or types of literature. There's le- in the scripture you have legal genre. The Mosaic Law is a law code, and even though we interpret everything in a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation, you don't read a legal document, even in English, the same way you read a a love sonnet, a Shakespearean sonnet. That in in poetry, language has a greater fluidity and uh, uh, elasticity of meaning than it does in a more rigorous, technical type of writing, uh, for example, like a legal document. Then we have historical narrative. We have parables. Uh, you will read in Hendrick's book, this is an important thing to note, that he has a category referred to as apocalyptic. Let me see where he has... Uh, where he talks about this. This is on page, um, or in chapter 29, where he talks about biblical genre and biblical categories. He has prophecy and apocalyptic listed on page 215. Apocalyptic is, in my opinion, not an acceptable genre. Apocalyptic refers to these non-biblical, somewhat fanciful writings about the future. You read apocalyptic, Jewish apocalyptic literature, and it doesn't read like Revelation or Daniel. 
biblical prophecy is not apocalyptic. Now, there's a whole issue with dealing with this issue of apocalyptic genre because that's that really then you're going to an extra-biblical or you're going to a category outside of the Bible, a category of literature, and then you're, you're developing the categories of that kind of a literature and reading that back into uh, what the Scripture says. And, and scripture sets the standard in terms of prophecy. It's still literal grammatical where, and it uses symbols, of course, and it uses imagery, but it's very different from what we have in so-called apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. So I would make a distinction, and I have when I've taught through Daniel and Revelation, that, uh, prophetic literature is, um, Prophetic literature, that's the category, not apocalyptic. On page 216, Hendricks writes at the top of the page, a special category of prophetic literature is apocalyptic, of which Revelation is the prime example. <clears throat> Dead wrong. Um, Revelation is not apocalyptic literature, It uh, and even his um, definitions of apocalyptic literature are not full when you look, are not complete when you look at apocalyptic literature, extra biblical apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. But he does have a very helpful breakdown, uh, in terms of different kinds of, uh, literary genre in the scripture, and this chart is on pages, uh, 217 through, through 19. It has biography. Biography is a type. It's not strict biography, though. The Old Testament literature is really highly editorialized uh, history and biography. It is God's viewpoint and God's interpretation of the biographical incidences within a person's life. For example, with Abraham, we're not told, uh, you know, if we were writing a biography in 21st century, we would write about his birth and about his parents and about their genealogies and their background, and we would go through their childhood and their adolescent years and their education and all of these influences, and you don't have any of that with, with, with Abraham. You're, we're told who his parents are. We know what his genealogy is, going back through the line of Shem. Uh, we're told that he's born in Ur of the Chaldees, but we're not given um, uh, any information about his childhood or his adolescence or his early years. We really don't even start paying attention to Abraham until he's in his 50s to 60s. So I don't think it's really fair to impose a category called biography on that. It's biographical, not biography, because biography has certain ideas with it in our in our culture that are not there. And I've made this same point in going through the Gospels, that the Gospels are biographical, but they're not biographies. They're historical. They describe historical incidences, but they're not histories, not in the modern sense of a history. Um, They are editorialized um, expressions of the life of Christ where different parts of his life are brought together to demonstrate the point, the thesis of each particular gospel writer. So uh, we have a, I would change the genre to biographical, 
Um, he has a second category on page 217, encomium, encomium rather, encomium, which is a uh, passage that sings high praise of someone or something. Uh, it's a use of hyperbole and exaggeration in, ex- in, in uh, stressing someone's attributes or their superiority, and he lists a number of uh, passages that indicate that. Then there's uh, the category of exposition, which is a carefully reasoned argument or explanation that's uh, well-organized, has a logical flow and development to it, such as uh, the book of Romans or any of Paul's letters, Romans, Ephesians, Hebrews, uh, list James, First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and Jude. You have narrative. This is just plain storytelling. You find that in some of the in the Gospels. You find Acts as narrative. Much of the Old Testament historical Genesis through um, Esther is <clears throat> a narrative that has different other elements within it. Then if you turn the page to 218, we have oratory, uh, oratorical sections, which would be the speeches, for example, Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, um, Stephen in addressing the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 17, Paul in terms of his addresses at Mars Hill, his address to uh, the different groups uh, in Acts 22, 24, and 26. That would all be oratory. We have parable. A parable is a is a story that usually doesn't. The people are not named. It's not talking about a specific historical individual, uh, and so it's uh, just sort of a generic uh, story to illustrate a moral or spiritual uh, principle. It relies on basically well-known characters, uh, stereotypes, and scenes and activities. Then he has another category, pastoral. This is uh, literature dealing with a rural rustic theme. Uh, lists Psalm 23, Isaiah 40, John 10, poetry, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and many, many parts of the prophets. If you look at your Bible, if you have like a New American Standard or NIV, and you read through Job, uh, not Job, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the, the minor prophets, much of what's written there is in the form of poetry. The curses of God upon Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 are structured within a poetic structure. The authors took time in how they structured and wrote uh, these things so that uh, the structure itself helps contribute to understanding the meaning of the passage. He talks about prophecy in Isaiah through Malachi, top of page 219. You have Proverbs. That's a separate uh, category. It's not just in Proverbs. There are some other places that have Proverbs in them as well. Uh, Judges chapter 7 is one with the parable of the bramble and the vine, um, or the proverb of the parable and the vine. You have satire, tragedy, wisdom, wisdom literature, and a lot, a lot of overlap between wisdom literature and poetry. So wisdom literature is a particular type of poetry. So it's important to address the topic of what kind of literature and how does that contribute to our understanding of things. Now, one of the trends in modern hermeneutics is to make too much of genre, where, every, where the meaning gets dictated by genre. 
that's what they've done with apocalyptic. That's another problem. Anybody have any questions on anything at this point? Okay. A couple more things to go over in terms of definitions. Uh, definition of hermeneutic. Now, in Roy Zuck's book, Roy quotes from Milton Terry. Milton Terry is an older, early nineteenth, early 20th century book on biblical hermeneutics. He does teach allegorical interpretation in, um, in that book, but he defines hermeneutics, as many people do. Hermeneutics is both a science and an art. Now, th- there's a problem with that definition. Hermeneutics is a science and an art. And then um, Terry writes, as a science, it enunciates principles, investigate the, investigates the laws of thought and language, and classifies its facts and results. Now, I would say, and I agree with Bob Thomas would say, and I learned this from him, that that really is the definition of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the application of principles of interpretation to a passage. It's the application of principles of interpretation to a passage. The art, as Terry goes on to say, is an art. It teaches what application these principles should have. Now, what the problem with the way this is defined is that really gets us into the area of exegesis. Exegesis is the application of the principles of hermeneutics to a passage, but hermeneutics is technically the principles of interpretation. When we exegete a passage, we apply that. So if you uh, are talking about hermeneutics as an art, it's the application of these principles, then when you come along as Zuck does, and for which... um, uh, Thomas critiques him <clears throat> that exegesis is the determination of the meaning of the biblical text in its historical and literary context. That's pretty close to the application of the principles of hermeneutics to a passage. Uh, so we have to keep, keep and maintain um, that distinction. Milton Terry concluded in the quote that Roy Zuck has, uh, the hermeneutical art thus cultivates and establishes a valid exegetical procedure. How do you distinguish that? See, he's taking a, he's made the definition of hermeneutics too broad so that it's already encroaching upon the definition of the next term, which is exegesis. And exegesis is under, determining the meaning of the passage through the application of your principles of hermeneutics. So hermeneutics, therefore, is the science of, deter- of the principles and the, and the laws of thought and language uh, in terms of classifying it in uh, its facts and results. So that's our, our definition of, of hermeneutics. Now, I think this time I had you look at, in the terms of the workbook, looking at uh, just those first couple of chapters, 45 to 48, basically went along and just gave you material to read with no real exercises. In chapter 49... 
there is an assignment on Acts, I mean on Habakkuk 3, 17. <clears throat> though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy uh, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high heels uh, to the chief musician with my stringed instrument. So let's just take a minute and read through. We've read through this, and we need to just look at the passage a little bit in terms of, uh, of interpretation. Uh, what I want you to do next time is, because both 49 and 50, um, well, 49, 50, and 51 all get 52, 53, 54, all of this works us through Habakkuk. So uh, this would be a good little exercise to begin with, working through these, these lessons in the workbook. Um, what's the context? Or the content here, what are we looking at? Any particular terms that you want to emphasize? What What are the key terms here? Fig tree. Hmm? What else? Vine. Yeah, fruit. Vine. Look at your nouns. Labor. Olive. Uh, fields, food, flock, fold, uh, herd, stalls. Are these to be understood literally or understood to be metaphorical of something? Hmm? Literally. And, and, uh, so, so we look at this and, and we ought to ask a bit better, who, who wrote the passage? I'll just look at the questions he asked. Who wrote the passage? Habakkuk, who's Habakkuk? Prophet. He's a prophet. This is a prayer. Uh, Habakkuk, you can go home and read about Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk is a prophet who is bringing a gloom and doom message. He would have been a good candidate to speak at the Tuesday night uh, current events of pre-trib. I always call that the gloom and doom night. Um, I quit going years ago when somebody else was uh, speaking uh, they used to have somebody else speak, and every year he would give about 90 predictions of how everything was going to fall apart in the coming year, and a hundred of them never came true. So I just I was so depressed afterwards. After about the third year, I said, I'm not going anymore. I can't rely on anything this guy says. I'll go out and have a good dinner with my friends and and um, not listen to him anymore. Well, Habakkuk is... Uh, Starts off, Habakkuk, you can read in the first chapter, he goes to the Lord in prayer and said, Lord, look at these Jews. They're so disobedient. They, they, they don't listen to anything you say. You need to judge them. And God said, well, I've got, I've got judgment coming. The Babylonians are waiting in the wings. And Habakkuk says, what? No, you can't use them. They're worse than the Jews. And then God has to teach him a little lesson, and he has to come to understand that God's in control. And that's really what happens in the second chapter. And then the third chapter is where Habakkuk comes to realize, yes, Lord, you are in control. And uh, and this leads down to uh, what he states there at the end, 
that even if I'm left with nothing, even though the, the country is destroyed and there's absolute devastation and famine, that there's no fig trees, no figs, no fruit, uh, no olives, the fields are fallow and, and fruitless, and the animals were all gone, even when everything is taken away from me, I will have joy in the Lord and the God of my salvation because he is my strength, not the details of life. And that's a tough, tough lesson to learn and to really make make one's own. So um, that sort of helps you answer the question of what's happening, what points the author trying to make, um, and you can just answer these these other questions. And I, for the next time, I would go ahead and read through um, a little bit more of this and work at least through chapter the, the worksheet on 50, and then um, maybe even into 51 as far as you can go on that uh, for, for next time. Okay, that'll give you a little work there. And then read through um, 30, 31, 32, those three chapters, 30, 31, and 32, and then we'll talk about those and Habakkuk next time. Okay? Any questions? All right, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to come together and uh, work through these principles of of hermeneutics, and next time we'll uh, get into this even more. And as each one works through Habakkuk, that you will use that, use your word to teach us and to encourage us, strengthen us in our study of your word and of the reality uh, of your presence in our life, that that is what gives meaning to everything in life, even when there is nothing left. Father, we thank you for all that you provide for us and that you are our strength and our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.